So we're talking about weddings today. And weddings are great things. Weddings are a great time. Everybody's celebrating. And sometimes some embarrassing things can happen. In our wedding, Tracy and I had an embarrassing moment. We uh, uh, didn't have a, a banner thing. We had a friend of ours who was taking care of the, the iPod, the, the playlist you know, for the music. And, and it was time for us to dance. We wanted to dance with our parents. Tracy wanted to da- dance with her dad, and I was going to dance with my mom. And so we asked our friend to, to put on a song for us. And uh, we asked him, just, there's some Nora Jones on there. Put, put her on. She's kind of this jazzy artist. And he puts on this song, and he starts playing, and we start dancing. And we realize that it's the song that she sings. She sings, it's, come on over and turn me on. <laughs> so <laughs> we start dancing, Tracy with her, mo- with her dad and me with my mom, to come on over and turn me on. And everybody's laughing, and we're laughing. and It's a little bit embarrassing, but we all got over it. But we're also watching here the moment of a possibly really embarrassing situation for this couple who's getting married in Cana. You know, the, the wine has run out. And for us, you know, it's, oh, the, the wine's run out. I mean, that happens, and, and it's not that big deal. But in that culture, it was a big deal. You see, weddings often went on for seven days, sometimes more, sometimes less. But often they went on for a week because, you know, in those times people couldn't just hop on a train or a plane and come to to visit family. It took a lot to travel for a wedding. So the family was obligated to take care of people and to provide food and, and, and provide wine to make sure that it kept going. And see, we also, it's hard for us to understand, but in that culture, that it was a lot about gift and exchange. You know, oftentimes people would give gifts and sort of the, in, the underlying expectation was that you'd reciprocate, that for every gift, something was received. And so you had people who would come and bring wedding gifts. Or, and in that culture, it was sort of embarrassing if you didn't have something to exchange for them or to give back to them, like a lot of food and plenty of wine. So in those days, it was, it was a big deal to have run out of wine. It was really probably really embarrassing for the family. And in a culture where your honor and your, and your esteem or people's esteem of you was a big deal, it was sort of like your credit card or it's how you interacted with people. If you were ashamed or had shame on your family... It was hard to make it. And so it's a big deal that they're starting to run out of wine. This is a a big situation for them. And now Mary, she sees it, and she sees that they've run out of wine, and she springs into action. And she comes to Jesus, and she tells him they have no more wine. Now through the Gospels, we see people coming to Jesus, all sorts of people. I mean, people with, with disabilities, people who can't see, even people who have different ideas about Jesus' ministry. I'm thinking of Peter when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. He says, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I need to go to, to Jerusalem to suffer. And he goes, no way, never let it be, Lord. And you can almost hear the, the next few things that Peter's thinking. is, I've got better plans for us, God. Things that would be so great. Well, you see Mary coming to him too and, and coming to Jesus and asking for his help, putting a claim on him, asking for him to do something. Now, Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding. Mary's at this wedding. People who've studied this passage wonder maybe if it was a relative, maybe like a a nephew or something like that, a Mary or someone related. But she sees that they've run out of wine and she feels this compulsion to react. We've got to do something. Now, it's hard to know the motives. John doesn't explain that to us. You know, we don't know if she was reacting because she was really caring. this, This caring woman who saw something, this train wreck ready to happen and wanted to intervene. We don't know, maybe she was just like, like some people, like really anxious that something was going wrong. I, I've got to do something. Even if it wasn't maybe even her responsibility. I, I need to do something. Or maybe she just knew Jesus, her son, Yeshua. She knew him. 
She knew that he was this powerful man. And she wanted him to do something. So she comes to him and she says, they have no more wine. That's all she says. And it's interesting for us the way Jesus responds. Now, we've got sort of the G version in the NIV. It says, dear woman, why have you, why have you come to me with this right now? But in Greek, it's more complicated. In Greek, it literally, Jesus literally says, what to you and to me, woman? That's what it says. And this idiom is hard to translate. I mean, people for centuries, pastors and scholars have been wondering, what does this idiom mean? What does this phrase mean? I mean, sometimes people have come up with ideas, I mean, and they've really tried to soften it, trying to make it so it doesn't seem like Jesus is being rude to his mom. And, but the troubling thing is, is that this phrase, it's used a few other times in the Gospels. Most commonly, it's when demons speak to Jesus and they say, what is it to you and to me, Jesus of Nazareth? Or what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It's a strange phrase that people don't know quite how to translate. But it's always this, this sense of this kind of adversarial. You know, it's not like this pleasing, you know, <laughs> Walton's view. But it's something complicated. I think John tells us this detail. He remembers this detail so that, I think, so that we will see that this wedding is not Jesus' wedding. And let me, I'm, we're going to explain some more of this soon. We're going to talk some more about Jesus as the bridegroom. And I think this story, or this, this story that John remembers, this sign that he remembers, is indicating, pointing to Jesus as the great bridegroom, the bride, the bride of the church, or sorry, the groom of the church. But we're going to get to that in a bit. But I think John remembers this detail and wants us to see it, that this is not Jesus being married. He's not getting married to a woman here. Jesus is not married. But I think it's preparing us for this idea that Jesus is the great bridegroom. So we have to work through this saying, but also Jesus says more. He says that, what is it to you and to me, woman? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And maybe some of you, if this is the first time you've worked through John's gospel, you may say, oh, well, I wonder what his hour is. But for those of you who've read John a few times, that word hour maybe kind of raises a flag for you. Like, I remember Jesus talks about his hour some in John's gospel. John has this, remembers Jesus talking about an hour. He says, my hour has not yet come. And I start to think of John 17. When Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. In John's Gospel, the hour, Jesus' hour, is referring to the cross, to the work that he did, the amazing work of grace that Jesus did, that God did for us on the cross. That on the cross, God the Son died for us that we might be reconciled to God the Father. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Good Shepherd who comes to give us life and life more full. All of these things happening at that hour on the cross. So we are kind of working through this phrase of what Jesus says to your mom, but it's interesting to, way, to see the way that she responds. I mean, it's, she, doesn't say, she doesn't scold Jesus, her son. She doesn't run off crying it's interesting, she turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he says. Do whatever he tells you to do. I mean, it's hard to, it makes it even more confusing because it's almost as if Jesus said, okay, mom, I'll take care of it. And she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. It's so, this passage has, has baffled people for centuries. But I also, I wanted to, there's one thing that I realized as I was reading this is that John has this way of telling us what happened 
in a way that draws us into the story. So it's almost, I feel almost as if when Mary says to the servants, when she says, do whatever he tells you to do, I almost hear them speaking to us. I hear her almost speaking right off the page to us. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Almost like this guiding statement for us as we work through John's gospel. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So as we're working through this, we see that people come and they have these requests for Jesus. Sometimes they're asking him for help. Sometimes people are asking for Jesus because they want Jesus on their agenda, on their plan. But the cool thing for me as I was working through this passage is realizing how Jesus responds. The ways that he balances this mission that God has given him, the ways that he balances that with, with the concerns of people, people who come to him asking for help, asking him for something, and yet he, can, he balances all of this, God's mission, the will of the Father, he balances this with this claim or this question or this request, can you provide something, can you help out here at this wedding? Well, it's great to see it. For me, it's amazing to see the way Jesus goes to work. So he sees these six stone jars. You know, something kind of like this, like probably about this high. Six stone jars. They were used for the ritual washing of hands. You see in, 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 in the time that Jesus walked in, in Palestine or in, in Israel, that people washed hands in terms of cleanliness. Purity was an important thing. And they think, thought if you touched something unclean that you became unclean. And then if you went and ate, it was bad. So you had to wash hands before you ate. I mean, it's not only good for hygiene, but for them it was a spiritual thing as well. So he sees these six stone jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons each. I'm talking like 120 to 180 gallons capacity here. He says, take these jars, and he, only, and he repurposes them. The wine has run out. These jars are for, for water and for, for washing hands. He looks at these, and he gives them a new purpose. He looks to the servants and he says, fill them. And they fill them to the brim. Not just, oh, put some water in I mean, I, I envision, you know, I, like when you look real close at a, at a glass of water and like the water is domed over the top of it. Filled full, brim full. Fills it with water. And then he says, draw some and take it to the master of the banquet. Or like, in our terms, we might say the master of ceremonies. Go take it to him. And they took it to him. You see, I see Jesus acting like God here. Filling out the role of God the Son. As he's telling people, do this, and there's no questions, they just do it. They go and they do exactly what he says. You see how powerful he is. This, this, this uh, power that he has with people. This power that people recognize in him. He says, fill and they fill. Draw and they draw. Take and they take. We see Jesus' power in this. But I also want to draw attention to what these servants don't do. They do what Jesus said, but you know what they don't do is they don't mix up a new batch from a wine kit. They don't add ingredients to anything. They're not, it's not like John left out a detail for us of what, how they made wine. They just follow Jesus' commands. And they take this wine to the, to the master of ceremonies. But I also want us to notice the way Jesus takes time for people. Despite the mission of God, the urgency of God's mission, of God's desire for salvation for his people, despite the urgency of this mission, Jesus still takes time at a wedding to provide wine. 
This is so encouraging to me. I think about all the things that God is at work in. And yet I can still come to him and say, Lord God, I need help. That we can still come to God, even with it seems like some of the smallest things. I, I talk with people sometimes and they say, I don't want to bother God with that. And I think to myself, and I say to them often, you're not bothering God. He's your Father in Heaven. He wants to know these things. A good Father wants you to ask, come and ask for help. But it's also encouraging to me, it's a challenging word to me, is I realize that in the kingdom of God, people are the most important part of the work. Let me say that again. In the kingdom of God, as kingdom people, people are the most important part of the work. See, when I, sometimes I'll be sitting in my office and I'll be working on the on sermon or I'll be studying or working on oh, you know, all the paperwork. And I feel like I'm up to here and someone will come in my office and I'm happy to set that stuff down and talk. And sometimes people say, oh, I know you're so busy. I just want to say, I say, no, this is the good stuff. This is the good work. This is the more important part. And it's encouraging to see Jesus is doing the same thing. I, it's encouraging to see how, how he forms me, how he forms us. And I think it is, too, about our kids. I mean, some of you, I mean, your kids are maybe grown, but like, I feel this with my sons. You know, I come home and I've, it's hard for me to sit down. I've got this list of stuff in my head that I want to accomplish. So I come home and <clears throat> I start to dive in and Corman comes up to me, Daddy, Daddy, let's play cars. And sometimes there are things that I really do need to finish. And I say, I can't right now, but let's play later. But I'm really working at trying to set it down. Say, yeah, Corbin, let's play cars. So not only am I telling him that I love him, but I'm demonstrating it to him. Maybe, maybe your kids are grown, and maybe it's your spouse that you need to do this with. Your husband or your wife. You know, for all the things we've got in our mind, all the projects that we're working on, that we, we set those things down and, and we spend time with people. People are the most important part of the work of the kingdom. But this is encouraging, or this is challenging us too. I mean, those are the easy people to set it down with, to set down our, our urgency and our busyness. But I think too about strangers. Jesus talks about, I give you a new commandment, love one another. Let people know you by your love. And how it demonstrates the love to people when regardless of how busy we are, and they come up to us and they say, I need something, or I need some help. Or can we talk? And we set it down and we spend some time with them. Jesus models this for us. That people are the most important part of the work of the kingdom. So I see Jesus and, I, and, I, it's, and it's so cool to see the way he balances this. This mission of God, the urgency that he feels, this, this mission that he's on, yet he balances it with this request while he's at a wedding to provide wine. And the good news is, the good news is to see what happens when Jesus responds. To see the amazing things, like a miracle happens right in front of us. People see it and people realize that something is special is happening here. And people even believe, even his disciples, believe into him again. Now the first thing is that water becomes wine. Now it's interesting for me as I love studying this and reading you know, other people, who pastors and, 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 and scholars who have been working on this, that for centuries people have tried to make this 
miracle more believable? I, I, it's, that's kind of foreign to me. I don't quite understand it, but it's almost as if people think, you know, if we could just make this miracle not quite so miraculous, it will be more believable for people and, and they'll believe Jesus. And, and so, like, for some, I mean, even, like, I mean, this was a, a pastor in the church, I mean, he lived, you know, over 1,600 years ago, but he said, you know, God is always making water into wine through natural process. I mean, water, you know, you mix it with grapes and, and wineskins and, it, you know, fermentation. Like, God is always making into water into wine, so we shouldn't be surprised. Well, okay, true, but this is something special. <laughs> We're meant to see that Jesus is doing something miraculous here, so let's not water it down. But also, too, I mean, in the last couple hundred years, when especially with modernity and science and people questioning the Bible in relation to science, uh, people have looked at this passage and trying to make it, quote-unquote, credible, have said that actually Jesus brought water, put water in the jars, and they gave it to the um, to the master of ceremonies, and he drank the water, tasting water, and sort of joking, like realizing it was a joke, said, oh, this is great wine, wink, wink. I, I don't understand that one either, but <laughs> so some guys try to put that forward. Others have said that, that you know, the, the, the disciples, or sorry, the servants mixed wine. There was some wine left over, and they just added water to it, and they mixed it. I think this is an affront. This is completely contrary to the gospel. This is completely contrary to John's intent. John, who wrote this gospel, or at least we're pretty sure he did, his intent for us. The message that he's trying to convey to us is that something miraculous happened here. This is completely contrary to the reality of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. These miracles of making water into wine, this is easy for him. He's been doing it from the beginning. And as I read through this text, one, I realize, or it occurs to me, that no way does a joke somehow reveal the glory of Jesus. No way does mixing water, basically watering down what little wine is left, no way does that cause disciples to believe into him. Something miraculous happened here. And I just I say this because you might hear people as they talk about this passage and try to, to make it more quote-unquote credible. I encourage you to read this as John intended it for us. This is something miraculous. This is a sign that reveals Jesus' glory. So these questions about watering it down, but let's, let's get back to the story of what's happening here. So these, these servants bring water to Jesus, or sorry, to the master of ceremonies. They bring it to him, and in the Greek it says, as he tasted the water, wine it became, or has become. And I think John is making this point very clear to us, that it, it was as he tasted it, it was miraculous that it became wine. And John tells us that, that this master of ceremonies didn't know where it came from. Which in John, if you read through John a few times, you'll see a few places where people, quote-unquote, don't know where it came from, but we do. Those who are reading me realize that it, this is of God. God is at work here. And the cool thing is, is that John says, but the servants who drew the water, not who drew wine, but who drew water, they knew where the wine came from. I can't help but speculate. I wonder, like, did they see and did they believe? Did they believe into him as well? So the, the, the master of ceremonies calls to the bridegroom. And he says, 
Everybody, everybody brings out the good wine at first. And then when everybody is drunk, when they can't tell the difference, they bring out the cheap stuff. But you, you have saved the best wine until now. Something is special about you. There is something different about you. He realizes that something is special happening here. And we see that water has been made into wine. But the cool thing, too, is that I also realized, or was reminded again reading this, is that the disciples believed into Jesus. They saw what happened, and they believed into him. Now, John has this funny way of saying it. They believed into him. In the other Gospels, it says they believe him, or they had faith, or they believed. But John says they believed into him. And people have tried to translate this, and I think they're getting close with something like they trusted their lives to him. They devoted their lives to him. They took their life and put it in Jesus' care. They believed into him. See, oftentimes in our culture, people talk, they, there's this, there's, they have separated belief from the way we live. So people can talk about what they believe and actually not have much bearing on the way they live. People can talk about it. I, I believe in Jesus. And yet, there's really not much fruit in their life. And yet they will say, I believe things about him. And yet their life doesn't really reflect it. See, the hard thing is the ancients used to call, they had a word for this. They called it hypocrisy. See, faith in Christ, and when he says believe, like I think of John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That word belief, in, in, in Jesus' sense, or in, in the Hebrew sense of the word, that always means what you think matches up with the way you live. The people can tell what you believe by the way you live. I think that's still just as true today. The people know what we believe, some by what we tell them, but more so by the way we live. Our lives convey what we believe. But I also realized, too, is that the disciples, as cool as it was that they believed in him and all that means for us, and it means through John's gospel, but also, if I may add this, they believed into him again. Because these disciples have already called Jesus the Messiah. They've already heard John call him the Lamb of God. They called him Son of God. They called him King of Israel. They called him the one whom Moses spoke about in the Law and the Prophets. All these names... These guys were already believing, and yet it says they believed into him. It reminds me that we continually believe into Jesus. Many of us have this moment in our life when we know of this moment of second birth. When we finally believe, it's almost as if the light went on for us and we began following Jesus. But I want to remind us that it is a daily thing. As important as that one day was, or as that moment was, it continues to be a devotion. Each day we believe into Jesus again. Each day we believe into him. Jesus talks about this. Take up, or Whoever wants to follow me, let them deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. Take up their cross daily and follow me. So when Jesus does these things, when Jesus responds, amazing things begin to happen. Miraculous things. Water becomes wine. Even people who don't realize what's happening realize that something amazing is happening here. Water, this is good wine, and you save it till now. And disciples, they believe into him. They trust in him again. 
as cool as all of these things are, as great as all this is, we still have got the most important part. The most important part about this passage, the most important thing John wants us to see is to see that Jesus' glory has been revealed. This is the first sign. He wants us to see again, to realize again who Jesus is. As the church, we are in this season of epiphany, meaning realization or realizing who God is. That as we look at this passage, I believe John wants us to realize again who Jesus is. To realize, one, that he is the word of God. That the, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Even water into wine was made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. But Jesus is the one who creates. It was through him that all this was created. The one who created grapes and water and sun and vines. It's not a big stretch for him to create water into wine. Jesus is the word of God. But I also believe John wants us to see that Jesus is also the great bridegroom. That Jesus is the groom. Groom of the church, of the people of God. See, Mary asked him, you know, come and and take care of the wine. Well, the wine, taking care of wine, that's the job of the groom and his family. Jesus is going to take care of that. We know this. But when he says, what is it to you and to me, woman? I think he's saying, like, trying to make this clear that he is not getting married here, though there is, he is the bridegroom. Think about it this way. When the master of ceremonies tastes the water that has become wine, he calls to the bridegroom and he says, everybody, everybody puts out the best wine first. And then when everybody's had too much to drink, they put out the cheap stuff. But you, you've saved the best wine until now. Who do you assume he's talking to? I don't know about you, but I've always assumed he was talking to Jesus. I mean, I know he's not. He's, I mean, uh, literally in the story, he's talking to a bridegroom. But when I read John's, I also see this connection that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the one who's provided the wine, the best wine now. And this image of bridegroom, it is not a far fetch. I mean, I think about the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 62, when he said, As young men marry a maiden, so your sons will marry you. And the Lord will rejoice over you like a husband rejoices over his bride. What about Hosea, when God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, that you will acknowledge the Lord. God is the bridegroom. What about when Jesus, when the Pharisees are coming to him, and they're asking, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, is it right for the wedding party to fast when the bridegroom is with them? Referring to himself. There'll be plenty of time for fasting when the bridegroom is away. What about Ephesians, when Paul talks about it? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water through the word, presenting her to himself to be a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, glorious and blameless. And I think about Revelation. When John sees it again, he says, I see a new heaven and a new earth because the first earth and first, because the first earth has passed away and there is no more sea. And I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her, for her, for her groom. These images of God and his faithfulness to his people depicted as, as a bridegroom caring for his wife. Well, as Jesus steps into this role by, by symbolically providing the wine, by providing the wine, he symbolically becomes his bridegroom. But the cool thing is that he also provides this wine. And not just a little bit of wine. 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot. He provides this wine. And the, the bridegroom says, you have saved the best wine until, or sorry, the master of ceremony says, you have saved the best wine until now. Until this moment. That God is at work here, that the kingdom of God has broken through in this moment. I think, and that's the title of the sermon, says, let the wedding begin in Cana. Let the wedding of God to his people begin in Cana. And I started thinking about wine and this quantity of wine. And you know, John makes it clear to us that there's a lot. And he actually quantifies six jars, 20 to 30 gallons, 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And I'm reminded of what it will be like that day when we have this banquet with God, this heavenly banquet. And Amos, he talks about, he says, in those days, the plowman will overtake the reaper. Those who tread grapes will overtake those who plant seeds. And the hills will drip with sweet wine. I hear again the words of Isaiah when he says, the Lord will prepare a lavish banquet that will be for all peoples. An amazing banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. That Jesus is in a way here, in this symbolic way, in a sign, in a sign that points beyond itself to something greater. Saying, let the wedding begin in Cana. The kingdom of God is breaking in here. 